Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. And I'm Michael Judson Berry. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> Listeners, um, some of you uh, may already know Michael, and if not, you may come to recognize him uh, soon from the uh, very distinctive and TikTok famous sound of his voice. Uh, well, hello, both of you. <laughs> Thank you for oh having God. me on the weirdest thing I've learned this week. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to pass It's away. a twofer. <laughs> it's like having one of our favorite fans and one of my favorite actresses of the stage and screen here with us today. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> uh, so, Michael, before we get into it, um, why don't you tell listeners who uh, do not yet know a little bit about who you are and uh, what you've got going on? Uh, thank you. Um, yes, I, I guess I'm not your traditional guest. Um, uh, I'm an actor, and um, during lockdown, I created this little... What started as a little um, Instagram slash TikTok parody show of Shit's Creek, where I did Moira Rose in lockdown as if she had her own sort of like talk show. And it was an inside joke for me and my friends. And it has now snowballed into this big thing. And even Catherine's talked about me in interviews. And um, so, yeah, so definitely if, if you if you don't know who I am, my TikTok and Instagram is M. Judson Berry, and it's called Quarantine Time. And every week I have another couple episodes of the the Rose family living in a pandemic world. And just absolutely delightful. Thank you. So uh, let's get into the show. 
On the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little bit of a tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, making TikToks, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah Kylie, uh, how about you start with your tease? Okay, so today I am talking about why you'd rather have skull surgery during the Incan Empire in Peru than you would ever want to have it done on the um, Civil War battlefield. Wow, a choice I <laughs> I have to make every day, yeah. <laughs> finally, <an> answer. <laughs> just the essentials, just the essential things you must know. <laughs> that is weirdest thing. <laughs> All right, and uh, Michael, what about your teas? So we all know that the crows have eyes, but we have recently learned that they also understand the very abstract concept of zero. Oh, that's pretty mm-hmm. smart. I don't. Right? I feel like I don't even understand that sometimes. I, I, <laughs> I was about to say. That. I feel like I took <laughs> like, it for granted until I read this article, and I was like, "Whoa!" I knew I was bad at math, but like, wow. <laughs> All right. Like the concept of nothing. Yeah, yeah. Bird, bird brains. We'll talk about that. Um, okay. My tease is that I'm going to talk about um, why New Yorkers uh, can thank the 1918 pandemic for their hyperactive radiators. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. They, those radiators have ruined so many self-tapes of mine trying to audition for things. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely many weirdest thing recordings have been paused for um, steam pipes of various uh, sorts over the years. It's like the Starbucks Um, clerk is not in a rainforest. (laughs) (laughs) Should we should we start with radiators then? I feel like uh, that was a good reaction. I'm happy to just segue. Excellent. Okay. please. Yes. So. Anyone who lives in a city is probably familiar with the radiator problem. Um, they hiss, they rattle, they smell kind of weird when they turn on for the season. And most importantly, they're really hot. Um, maybe this isn't quite as prevalent in other urban areas, but I don't know a single New Yorker who hasn't lived in at least one apartment where it was like sweltering all the time in the dead of winter. Um, and in a lot of cases, the only options are to physically turn off the radiator like at the valve which means having no heat or to open your window which feels like such a waste of of the gas that they're using to power the steam radiators but thanks to a late 2020 tweet from director and producer anna breton i have a newfound appreciation for all of those dang radiators that kept me up at night and made what i can only describe as a wet marble slot machine noise when i lived in pre-war buildings in harlem Here's the the main takeaway. The the radiators get too hot on purpose. It is by design. And they were designed that way to help lower disease transmission during the 1918 influenza pandemic. I will explain. (laughs) But first, I think we should do a little primer on the 1918 flu because it's one of those things that everyone has started to kind of pretend to be an expert on in as much as it can be used as like a point of comparison for our current pandemic. And look, no shade to anyone. And obviously, there are people in the world who are literal experts on this period of history and the epidemiology of said pandemic. But like, let's be real, most people don't 
don't really know anything about it. I didn't really know much about it. Um, so yeah, like, you know, listeners, consider this your opportunity for a judgment-free rundown, a little, little 101, uh, to inform you the next time you come across a topical Twitter thread that mentions the 1918 <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> First of all, do either, does anyone on the call <laughs> know, um, why it was referred to as the Spanish flu and often still is? Somewhere in the recesses of my brain, there's a file that knows this. Um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I swear, but my filing system's terrible. Um, so, no. Nope. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. I feel like I should know, but it's... it's yeah. No, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Nobody knows, <laughs> but I found out. Um, Great. <laughs> so, this really blew my mind. Um, the flu started wreaking havoc on the world in the spring of 1918, and it persisted until the summer of 1919, uh, but World War I was still raging for the first few months of that period. Um, and as a result, most countries, including most of Europe and the entire U.S., they were censoring coverage of the virus. I guess the rationale was that it would hurt morale or, like, I imagine, broadcast weakness to the enemy. Um but Spain was neutral in World War I, and because of this, their news broadcasts weren't censored in that same, like, wartime propaganda sort of way. That meant it was one of the first countries to just publicly acknowledge that there was a dangerous virus spreading. So we actually still don't know where the 1918 pandemic started. Um, it's possible it came from the U.S. Europe and Asia are also probable candidates. But the point is, there's no reason to think it was Spain. Spain is no more likely a candidate than any other country. Um, it's just the first big country that like copped to there being a problem, uh, which it's kind of, I was like, it's a shame <laughs> oh. to, to have the virus associated you with you for the rest of history because you just were like, it exists. Uh, it's happening. <laughs> and yeah, the 1918 pandemic, it was historic and remains so to this day. It was terrible, horrifying. It killed at least 50 million people, um, which was about 2.5% of the population at the time. And unlike most strains of the flu, it was more likely to kill young, healthy men than any other demographic. One theory on this holds that your immune system is always going to be primed to mount the best defense against the first strain of flu you ever encounter. Of course, the flu mutates a lot. Um, that's why we need a new vaccine every year. Different strains of it are always emerging and circulating. And the annual flu vaccine is just selected based on what strains epidemiologists think are going to be a big problem. It's actually this huge Herculean effort. I'll link to more info on popsci.com slash weird in the article for this show. Um, get your flu shot. Anyway, it's possible that most young people in 1918 had first been exposed to the H3N8 subtype of the flu, which is about as different as you can get from the H1N1 subtype that the 1918 strain belonged to. We don't know this for sure, but it's a pretty good theory. For most people, the 1918 flu was, to quote an adage that's all too common these days, just the flu. The flu is bad. Like, just the flu means pretty bad. But people were 25 times more likely to develop serious illness and die than a typical flu season. And like COVID-19, the 1918 flu, when it was bad, wasn't just a respiratory disease. It caused systemic problems. It was, um, again, really horrifying. And that pandemic had a huge impact on global culture. Uh, for one thing, 
eugenics was very much the prevailing pseudoscience of the day, and it was mainstream science. We've talked about this a lot on Weirdest Thing. You can look back at our episodes on sideshow baby hospitals, on naked air bathing, and the origin of the word moron for more on that. I know those all sound very silly, but they all involve the American eugenics movement, a thing that I am passionate about people understanding, because... (laughs) We made it here first. You you heard it here first, eugenics in America, and then the Nazis just copied it. And I think that's something we shouldn't have forgotten. It's on us. Um, anyway, to be honest, eugenics stayed very mainstream in America until World War II when um, doctors started to like not want to be compared to Nazis. Uh, but the fact that the 1918 flu was worse for people thought to be of, you know, less pure stock, like immigrants or the poor, but like anyone could get it, including young, healthy, you know, quote unquote, well-bred white men. Um, That definitely put like a crucial ding in eugenics armor as a school of thought. Um, And the pandemic is also credited with encouraging a lot of European countries to turn to nationalized health care to ensure that even the nation's most vulnerable residents could protect themselves from disease, not necessarily for any altruistic reasons, but because it was very clear that, um, you know, if you didn't have access to health care, if you lived in tenements, then uh, diseases like this would transmit really rampantly and that then that would hurt the whole country, including rich people. So Great. Healthcare for everyone. The resulting labor shortage, because of how it struck healthy young men, led to strikes and better worker conditions. It helped get women into the workforce, though, of course, that really took off during World War II. Um, And it's probably not a coincidence that women got the vote in the U.S. in 1920. But getting back to radiators. The impacts of this 20th century pandemic weren't just visible in the way we run healthcare or the makeup of the American workforce. We can also see its lasting legacy in our built environment. So in 1918, our understanding of viruses was new and, um, shall we say, incomplete. Uh, But health officials had like caught wind of the fact that better ventilation and more fresh air seemed to fight off airborne diseases like the flu. Um, In fact, it actually like started beating this drum even back in the 1800s, including before anyone knew what a virus was. People had been studying tuberculosis and saw that it spread more in unventilated homes. Um, So they didn't really get why, but they were like, stuffiness is a scourge. It is the root of disease. Open your windows. And then, you know, once we discovered viruses, then it was like, yeah, open the windows so that like a little bug can fly out and not be in your face. When the pandemic persisted into winter, New York City officials uh, were asking residents to keep their windows open so that we could get more of that good air going. And so, yeah, lots of U.S. cities with high population density and cold winters like New York uh, started using these like overpowered steam radiators to keep homes toasty, even when the windows were open. That's actually why they're generally placed under a window so that the idea is that like you're heating the fresh air as it blows in. Now, because a huge chunk of the available living space in New York City was built between 1900 and 1930, um, we still have this public health hack at our disposal. Uh, Meanwhile, the power source for the boilers that power those steam radiators switched from coal to oil and then to natural gas, um, which means they've gotten more powerful. (laughs) 
meanwhile, new windows have been put in that provide much better insulation. So not only are we using heaters designed to be used with an open window, which is something that like many of us feel guilty doing, uh, but they're actually even hotter than they were designed to be. And our apartments are now even toastier with windows shut than 20th century engineers ever intended. Um, So in the years following the pandemic, engineers figured out that you could cut the heat output of a radiator by around 20% by covering it in some kind of metallic paint, which is why generally they're shiny. Um, And then they figured out you could further reduce the output by covering it with like a cozy. But yeah, as any New Yorker will tell you, the problem is far from solved. Um, Radiators remain too hot, but... Uh, there was a time when um, this was was really useful and helpful and um, thank goodness for it. So I hadn't I I I was wondering why they always are painted that sort of like shiny. It it is a very it's not very aesthetic and they are all painted that color. I too was like ah that makes so much sense and (laughs) and that they are so hot. They're really Yeah, well, and it's like, it's not just the radiators, it's also those steam pipes. And I feel like it's a rite of passage in New York to have a tiny bathroom with a steam pipe where it's impossible to get into, like, your bathroom cabinet without burning your butt on the steam pipe. Um, I think if if that, the day that happens to you, you're a true New Yorker. And until then, I don't care how long you've lived here, uh, it's not real. Um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but true. yeah, you know, it's I mean, obviously that the 1918 pandemic was was horrifying and we learned a lot from it. We forgot a lot from it. Uh, but, you know, I am um, I'm really curious to see like what kind of things 100 years from now people will be going like, yeah, you know how the radiators are always too hot. It's because of the weird decisions they made in 2020 to try to beat the pandemic and you know what as long as they work as well as opening windows great i can't wait for our like you know great great grandchildren to be um complaining about whatever the equivalent of a too hot radiator is (laughs) i love that like europe's like answer to the flu is like let's let's reform healthcare and new york was like no it's just gonna be we're gonna make your room so hot That you literally can't live without there being ice cold New York January air blowing on you at the same time. <laughs> it's a like great point, Sarah like Kylie. America. Really, <laughs> like what? What? <laughs> uh, it's refreshing that some things never change. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did in reading some articles about you know the the larger impacts of the nineteen eighteen pandemic. You know, there were like nationalized healthcare in in lots of European countries, and the U.S. implemented insurance Uh, like we well we tried we tried something you know we're good at so (laughs) many things that's true (laughs) (laughs) all right we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home It can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do 
is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This season of The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is recorded with the Shure MV7 podcast kit. It's Shure's first hybrid XLR USB microphone, and it's perfect for just about anyone whether you're an entry-level podcaster or an experienced creator. The intuitive design makes it super user-friendly and simple to set up and control. The MV7 Podcast Kit also includes a Manfrotto Pixie Mini tripod, so it has everything you need to start recording straight away. That is super helpful for first-time creators who are buying their first mic setup. Best of all, the Shure MV7 focuses on what matters most, your voice. That means you'll get clear and rich audio no matter where you're recording. Check it out for yourself at www.sure.com slash popsci. That's S-H-U-R-E dot com slash P-O-P-S-C-I. Okay, we're back. And um, Michael, I would love to hear about some crows. Well, I'm excited to talk about crows. <laughs> this was such a fun rabbit hole that I went down. Um, so, so yes, uh, we recently discovered that crows understand the concept of zero. Um, so we as humans didn't even, um, adopt the concept of zero, uh, as a member of our numerical family until roughly the fifth century AD. Um, right. Yeah. Later later Uh, than I expected. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As like a thing where they were like, oh, like eight times zero is still zero or like 10 plus zero is still 10, you know? It, it joined, which to us, that, you know, sounds very, you know, we all learn that when we're kids. We're like, well, yeah, this is this is simple. But apparently, according to Professor Andreas Nieder, um, who is a professor of animal physiology at the Institute of Neurobiology uh, at the University of Turnbergen, I think that's how you say it in Germany. Professor Nieder said, if you ask mathematicians, most of them will probably tell you that the discovery of zero was a mind blowing achievement. So... Don't take zero for granted, everybody, because it blew everyone's minds in the 5th century. Um, (laughs) Because the special thing about zero is that it doesn't fit into the routine of counting real objects, like real tangible things and real integers. So, you know, you have a basket of apples, one, two, three apples. If there's nothing there, there's if it's just an empty basket, you're like, well, there's no apples. There's nothing here to count. Um, (laughs) So... Um, you know, it just represents emptiness. Uh, so obviously, this is a very abstract way of thinking when it comes to numbers, or as they say, a detached from empirical reality, which this, people are so much more eloquent Story of than my life. I will ever be. I know, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, but, you know, as we all know, crows are, we're learning, are more and more brilliant. So they did this study with them. This just came out, uh, was published on June 2nd in the Journal of Neuroscience. The team had two male crows, and they did this experiment where they put them on a little wooden perch. Um, that just makes me think of Alexis' hands. I'm so used to doing Shit's <laughs> Creek things. She's like a cute little perch with like their cute little crow feet. Um, you, David, you look like a crow. Um, 
<laughs> anyway, so they put them on this and they had a, a monitor in front of them and they would show them two images back to back. So it would be uh, either a blank screen or a screen with one dot, two, three or four dots. And so they were trained where um, if it was uh, they matched, if it was one screen with one dot and then the following one had one dot, they were trained to react, either like peck at it or move their head or have a little like crow kerfuffle moment. Um, if they didn't match, say it was one dot and then four dots, they just were trained to stay still. And just sort of chill and just be like, those don't match. Um, So they had done this before with dots, but they recently just tried this with zero. And they found that they actually did that as well. So it was a blank screen. They knew the difference between a blank screen and like four dots. Um, But what surprised them even more is that they also have this thing called numerical distance effect. Um, which uh, I just learned about. Um, And it's where uh, humans do this too. We also have these neurons that um, in our brains that detect this. But we're more likely to sort of mess up numbers that are close together. So say it's two dots and then three dots. That's when they were getting it wrong because they were getting these answers right 75% of the time. And the only times they didn't was when it was close numbers, like three or four or one and two. Um, and what they found was that when they would mess up the zero slide, the one, it was really only with one dot. So they realized that not only do they get that zero is different from the other ones, but that it falls before the number one. Oh. Which is nuts because so far only like humans and like great apes and stuff understand that that's where zero would fall in the numerical order. Um, so that was very exciting that they could discriminate zero. Um, and um, I got so excited about this. I've now lost my place in my notes. <laughs> um, uh, yes, because they're so they, this is a very exciting thing, obviously. And they're still trying to figure out why, because the animals that do understand numbers and numerical systems, it's, you know, fout of survival. So when they're looking at food, they can tell the difference between like one berry and five berries. You know, this is an evolutionary survival instinct to be able to count because um, then they're like, can I carry a bushel of berries or just two to my nest. (laughs) Um, So they're still trying to figure out, like, why? Why have they developed this sense of zero, especially since it took us so long to figure it out for ourselves? And it's only when we started to do math. And so they're like, so so that's the next thing. But they found that other things, even honeybees, um, actually have the same neuron that we do, that crows do, that some mammals do, that lights up whenever they see a blank thing versus a number thing. So all that to say, there's more to come from Professor Nieder in Turnbergen in Germany. Um, I'm so <laughs> sorry for butchering that name. There's an umlaut in the name somewhere, and I'm trying to remember how you pronounce that. But so all this to say, this crows thing of mine. So thank you for going on this journey with me. Um, so the rabbit hole where it continued um, was I found these other studies because now I'm like, well, they're terrifyingly smart. And I had read once or not read. This is sort of a family story. I'm going to spin another plate real quick. Years Please ago, do. I had an ad- I had my tonsils out. And an adult tonsillectomy, if you've never had one, is a truly wretched experience. It's sure, extremely yeah. painful. <laughs> um, it's it's awful. If you can avoid it at all costs, please do. Um, and I was living in L.A. at the time, and my mom flew out to take care of me for two weeks because everything hurts. And you can't speak. And um, so my mom's a big reader. And one of the books she brought was the book The Genius of Birds. And um, I feel no need to read it now because she would read a chapter and then just sort of recount to me what she'd read. And uh, I couldn't say anything. I just sat there like little mermaiding it. I was like mm, smiling and nodding. Um, and uh, But I'll never forget the one chapter she talked about was crows um, and their understanding of water displacement. 
And so when I was researching this concept of zero, I was like, let me see about this. And I found videos of this, and they've done multiple studies where crows understand water displacement. And actually, Aesop even wrote a story a long time ago called The Crow and the Pitcher, all about oh, a crow. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I remember that. Who fills a pitcher with stones that has some water so it can get to the water. Um, and I learned, I never knew this, but we as humans don't even understand water displacement until we're roughly five to seven years old. Um, apparently it's a tricky concept. Um, <laughs> but crows, they did this initial study, this is a while ago, where they gave them two cylinders and they were half filled, one with water, half with sand, and then they put food in there. You know, so it was just far enough down where they couldn't reach it. And the crows kind of pecked at both and then they identified one was water, one was sand, and there was all these little objects. And some objects floated, some didn't. And they chose the denser objects like stones and plunked them in the water with the food and they kept doing it until the food rose and they could grab it. I would not like, obviously it would be a really weird set of circumstances for me to be in that same situation. Uh, But I'm just saying I would not, I would not be able to think my way out of that. I would just be hungry. (laughs) Well, and that's most children. It's like a, like a three-year-old, three-year-old Michael would sit there and just starve. Or like right. get angry and or just knock dump, it over. Or dump the water glass out. Yeah, dump the that, water that would out. Be but my crow, move for sure. I feel like crows. It's because they don't have thumbs yet. They're just like waiting right. for us. They, yes. they have to outthink us because of the thumb problem. That's for real. It. They're like just waiting. They're like humans. Either you mess up or we grow thumbs. But one of these things is going to happen, and we're going to take over. Like you can go focus on dolphins and whales and elephants, who you think are smart. That's really cute. We're just going to chill up here on this like telephone wire and just watch you. <laughs> Um, We're learning. They don't call this a murder for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But, and then if we have time, the last one that this one just, but I actually just saw this this morning when I was doing like a last minute deep dive. And um, again, you can tell I'm such a fangirl. I'm just like fanning being on here at all. Um, (laughs) So the, (laughs) the last one I found was that, so we all know that birds, especially crows, use tools and they have their favorite tools that they like carry around with them. And they'll, like, use things and reshape them into hooks and things like that. But they found that birds are now the only other species than humans that can use, that create compound tools of more than two pieces. Oh. So they did this another amazing study um, where they had crows and they put food in, like, a, a clear, a plastic box that you could see in with two holes on either side. And too far for the crows to reach, and they gave them a stick. And the crows figured out very fast that if they took the little stick and, like, poked it, they could poke the food far enough over to where they could reach it. And they were like, well, this was too easy. So let's give them a more tricky tool. So they took um, syringes, like large plastic syringes, and they took the plunger bit out of the pipe bit, which I learned is the technical term. And uh, (laughs) they put them in front of them. And the crows, they said, within four to six minutes figured out to put the plunger bit into the pipe bit and then poke that through to get the food out. And so they were like, well, this again was too easy. So we're going to break it down. They just kept giving them more different objects into smaller and smaller pieces. And they continued to figure it out. Um, wow. Yeah, which is amazing. They had one in that particular study. They did it at Oxford. And they had one crow who I think is now my favorite. It was like one of my heroes. His name was Mango. And <laughs> they said he had apparent fluctuating motivation which I think we all can relate to that. Um, because he was very successful at first and then just refused to participate in the two follow-up trials. 
Like, I'm not doing Literally was like, seriously, bros, like, we know I can do this. And you're gonna feed me eventually. <laughs> I have nothing to prove. Nothing. Good for you, Mango. But then they were like, we found out Mango was just a moody genius. Because in subsequent trials, Mango was the best one at using tools of three to four pieces and used them successfully nearly every single time. And sometimes when Mango would assemble them wrong and they would start to break, he would then try again, but with the same pieces in a different order and would actually problem solve how to make the best like food poker. Mango. So wow. mango for the win. I love that mango is like, no, I need a proper challenge. Yeah. Um, no, mango is yeah. like the, the kid who gets put in like gifted and talented classes and then stops doing their homework. They're like, for real. Yeah. That was my it, sister. It bores me. My sister did that and she didn't go to school on Mondays for an entire year. She was like, I only need four days of, of school when everybody else needs five. Me, my sister's the one that got me into this podcast. She's an engineer who's getting a PhD or going back to get a PhD in, um, uh, biomedical engineering. She's like oh, awesome. crazy legit genius and um, and researches for funsies. But that was her <laughs> in school. It was this big battle in seventh grade. She wouldn't go to school on Mondays because she was like, I don't need to. Yeah, I would like, get in trouble for not trying at school. And I'd be like, why do I have the best grades in class then? And my teachers would be like. <sighs> yep. You can't argue with that. And that yeah. was her thing, too. She was like, as long as my GPA is at a certain point. The minute it slacks, I'll go to school. On I Monday. was a little. I didn't learn how to study. I did. There were many skills I just did not learn because I was too busy being a little. Shit, so, uh, I think I turned in the same algebra homework like as all of my algebra homework for a year. I just changed like <laughs> what the chapter was at the top, and I was oh, fine. Like, I, you're oh so no! Somehow I, I don't. Smart oh. kid <laughs> listening to this show. I know school is boring, but like try to find something to engage your brain with. Yes. And you, like, like learn skills, please. Yes. And try to <laughs> like college statistics is harder when you don't know how to do basic. See, math. that's why that's why I went to drama school. And this Mr. Lavecchio, my tenth grade math teacher, would be like if I could see his face right now, me attempting to talk about anything to do with math. Like because I was like, I'm going to be an actor. I don't need this. I was like, yeah, we had to have a lot of sit down chit chats about how I still math is still useful in life as an adult. Um, well, you know, I don't know. And I found this. So this is kind of a long quote. Um, but to sum up, this is my final note. Um, this author, David Quammen. Oh, yeah. David um, Quammen. Yes. He had this great thing. He hypothesized that the crows are simply the bored teenagers of the world. And so he said, crows are bored. They suffer from being too too intelligent for their station in life. Respectable evolutionary success is simply not, for these brainy and complex birds, enough. They are dissatisfied with the narrow goals and horizons of that tired old Darwinian struggle. On the lookout for a new challenge, see them there, lined up, conspiratorially along a fence rail or a high wire, shoulder to shoulder, alert, self-contained, missing nothing, feeling discreetly thwarted. Waiting like an ambitious understudy for their big break, which boy do we know that. Dolphins and whales and chimpanzees get all the fawning, publicity, and great fuss made over their near human intelligence. But don't be fooled. Crows are not stupid. Far from it. They are merely underachievers. They are bored. <laughs> wow, I love that. Right? Are you sure that's not the pitch for the crows have eyes? <laughs> like, that's like. Like, I could just. If that was a book, it'd be on the back. For real. You know what I mean? Oh, gosh. Or even that movie, The Birds. I feel like Tippi Hedren would not like this episode at all. She'd be like, oh, God. I feel like that quote is like crows are the opposite of pandas who have evolved to just eat 
be so big and ha- eat a food that's so low in calories and nutrients that all and so hard to digest. They just have to literally spend all day eating and then digesting. And that's all they can do. That's all they're designed to do. And they're just like, this is fine. I have never <laughs> never related so much to an animal as to what you just described. I didn't know that about pandas, but I would know better. If I didn't know better, I think you were just like describing me. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one last fact. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, we're back. And uh, Sarah Kylie, tell us about head surgery, brain surgery, skulls, something. The whole <laughs> lot of it. Yeah. So um, to start off with, I feel like head wounds make me very nervous. And in general, getting a head wound should make everybody nervous. You know, even getting a bonk on the head or getting a concussion or anything like that can really alter your day to day life, even in, you know, today's world. Um, but You know, back in the day, everyone was still hitting each other on the heads with clubs as far back as you can imagine. So um, there was always some kind of skull surgery around. And so basically what that's called is trepanation. And trepanning in its simplest form is drilling a hole into a live person's head to relieve some of the pressure and tension that comes from a traumatic head wound. And as you can imagine, there's, you know, lots of clubs hitting heads throughout history, lots of people falling, you know, we do that. And so... There was a lot of this going on throughout history, and there's evidence of this going back thousands of years, you know, scraping off layers of somebody's skull, like as far back as the Neolithic era in Europe. But today, we're talking about the rock stars of trepanation, the Incas, and the Peruvians who came before. So we're going to back it up a little bit to the 1800s. So in 1865, anthropologist Ephraim George Squire was gifted a skull from his hostess, a woman named Senora Zentina, who was an art collector down in Peru. And so the skull came from an Incan burial ground, but it was a little bit weird because what they came to realize is the skull had a square hole about a half inch in size just drilled into it. So if you can picture just a skull, he's got like a a hole in there. More more than the usual number of holes. Yeah, Yeah, there's like, this is a big old honking hole. And so... What what Ephraim or Squire came to realize is that this was due to deliberate surgery. This wasn't just experimenting on a deceased person, but the skull actually showed signs of healing. So this person had been walking around just fine after having a square cut out of their Whoa. head. And so, yeah, just chilling, having a hole in his head. So this is a big hoopla for a lot of reasons. First of all, so it's 1800s. There are still people doing trepanation in modern day medical settings. 
and the procedure was far from a walk in the park. So neuroscientist Charles G. Gross wrote about this in his book, quote, A Hole in the Head, More Tales from the History of Neuroscience. A Hole in the Head is like the cute word for trepanation. People talk about it a lot. It's everybody's book title. Um, so basically... <laughs> Sarah Kylie calling out lack of creativity in neuroscience. <laughs> I mean, writing I would also... Popular science books. I would also call it that. Like, yeah, what no, else it's is good. I mean, it's good. I yeah. see what they were all going for. It I works. Do. It's like, it's absolutely right. And so... um. Basically, in this book, he talks about how even the best hospitals during Squire's day, survival rates of this surgery were kind of around 10% um, on the field in the Civil War, which is, you know, happening a couple years before. Um, field docs were treating head wounds in a similar drill manner, cutting around broken bones of injured skulls and doing their best to, like, not touch anything important like the dura matter. But at least half of those patients died, according to Civil War medical records. So, obviously, this isn't something that, you know... Even in the most modern of these people's time, they're like, okay, this is a very risky surgery. I can't believe anybody was still bopping around really after this. Um, so Squire brought on another noted anthropologist and surgeon, Paul Broca, for some more investigation of the skull. And around 10 years later, he brought his findings out that, yep, this skull had been trepping back in the Inca era. And the patient went on for, you know, a little bit more of his life. And so he brought that all to the Anthropological Society of Paris and Perhaps surprisingly, the audience was a bunch of European people and they were kind of swayed by just, you know, racism and general belief that Westerners were the bomb at medicine and nobody could really do better. So they're kind of like, there's no way. Like, mm, I don't think so. But years later, Broca discovered an even older skull, this time from France, that showed somewhat similar results. So Gross wrote in his book, a number of skulls in a Neolithic gravesite were found with roundish holes two or three inches wide. The skulls had scalloped edges as if they'd been scraped with a sharp stone. Even more remarkable, discs of skull of the same size as the holes were found in these sites. Some of the discs had small holes bored in them, perhaps for stringing as amulets. Although a few of the discs had been chiseled out after death, in most cases it was clear from the scar formation at the wound's edge that the interval between surgery and death must have been years. Ooh. So basically, as far back as you know, we can really even think about, people were doing this surgery and people were surviving. So they're just bopping around. Um, so since, you know, since that, the, all of these discoveries, we found even more um, proof of these things happening. So scientists have been able to find and explore all manners of trepidation throughout the years. Hippocratic medical methods in ancient Greece, ancient China, Polynesia, Africa, you name it. But non-Western or quote-unquote primitive trepanning has also often been associated with some kind of like superstitious, primitive thinking, magic, or exorcism. So it's really hard for, you know, modern scientists of the day that were finding this to kind of believe like, okay, like this is actual medical stuff. This isn't just, you know, we're trying to enlighten or we're trying to open up our brains. It's not, it's more than just ritual. But unlike the skull surgery that was happening at the same time as a lot of these discoveries, these, these patients were surviving, you know? So Gross wrote in his book again, finally, the apparently excellent survival rate meant that the procedure, at least until moved into a hospital setting, may have met the prime requirements of medicine do no harm. But recent findings have found that the Incans were like the best of the best at this. So a 2018 study, a group of scientists from Tulane, University of Arizona, and University of Miami in Florida did some deep diving into Peruvian trepidation. And so they found these three big groupings of skulls. One of them was from 400 to 200 BCE, and that was in the, um, on the coast. And it's a group of people called the Paracas. And so, you know, 
for some context, that's when the wheel was being invented. Um, <laughs> and then there was a bunch more in the highlands from 1000 CE to 1400 CE. And then there was about 160 that were found around Cusco in the highlands during the Incan Empire, 1400 CE to mid 1500s. And so these scientists go and look at these you know, skulls with holes in them. And they're like, okay, how do we know if somebody survived? And basically the key here is healing. So with any, you know, wound, if it heals, you know, that person's been alive and working on it. And it's, it's like, if you chop off your arm and it heals up and your heart's still beating, you know, it's not like you didn't die right then and there and it healed up without you. So um, what they found was that, you know, in this time, first time zone around, you know, we're talking wheel time, about 40% of the patients that underwent this surgery or this, you know, prehistoric thing, 40% of them survived. That's pretty and good. The next group, I feel like... 40%! Like, that's a big deal. When I think about, like, like, re- like that period of prehistory, I assume mo- most things would kill about half the people who did that. Oh, yeah. And we're talking... Eating a fruit. We're talking open Trying skull. to light a fire. Yeah, there's like, a hole in skull. getting a scratch, like <laughs> literally, so, like seems good. So they just have a hole and they're doing fine, and it helped whatever we're going through for forty percent. And in the next group, which is this like kind of in between, which is about a thousand years later, it goes up to a, a little bit over fifty percent. So we're seeing some growth, but not like anything crazy. But let's get to the Incas. So by the time we're at the Incan Empire, 75 to 83% of the patients were surviving. And some of them had multiple holes in their skull. So I think the like record breaker is like seven holes in a skull and the guy was still, you know, bopping around. Guy or lady, whoever it was. I, I just what? I, I just want to imagine that that person was like a wellness influencer and was like, you have to, I just, once a year... It gotta pop I, in. I just have to do it. Yeah. Hashtag self care. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I'm sure they probably had something very serious going on that I shouldn't be making light of. But what if they yeah. were just Gwyneth Paltrow? That's and that's like oh, a- the, the ink and goop. They were like, yeah. it's it's spring. Time to put another hole in your head. Get those winter demons out. Oh my gosh. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I literally I got to talk to one of the authors on the study, and that's pretty much what he said. He's like, we have hypochondriacs today. Like they definitely were there. Like. <laughs> Still like, okay, I am still dealing with I'm some problems. I'm looking at WebMD and it says yeah. I need another hole. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I will not take no for oh an answer. Ink and WebMD. I walked past a cliff and I saw an image in the stone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's time for another drill to enter my head. But yeah. Yep. So just a reminder. And so Ink and Empire and then, you know, 300 years or so later, we are doing more or less the same surgery in America and people are just dying left and right. And so... What's going on here? And basically the findings that people were surviving are kind of a good sign that this wasn't just for funsies. Like this wasn't just some kind of ritual. There was something more going on. And so John Veranos, the author who I got to talk to, and so he's the um, second holes in the head, the art and archaeology of trepanation in ancient Peru author. So he also has a hole in the heads book. Basically what he's kind of come up with is the way that trepidation kind of evolved throughout these three stages, it really looks like just, you know, first aid emergency medical care instead of like something weird. So basically, so he told National Geographic a couple years ago, it probably started as a very simple thing, cleaning the scalp after a blow to the head and doing some simple things like picking out broken pieces of bone, which would be dead. They learned early on that this was a treatment that could save lives. We have an overwhelming amount of evidence that trepidation was not done to increase consciousness or as a purely ritual activity that is linked to patients with severe head injury, especially skull fracture. 
Of course, there's some instances um, throughout history where holes are found in heads of people that didn't have brain injury, but also, like, we didn't have any kind of, like, sur- you know, surgery for the brain. So if you had epilepsy or maybe if there was, like, something else going on, like, this was... Right, there, there wasn't a lot of... There weren't a lot of diagnostic options. Right, so, like- so it's like, let's just look... Let's take a little peek in there. And the way to do that was to scrape away. Um, there's still some debate over, like, how much... Because I think sometimes scientists are like oh it's like letting the headache out or especially like back in back when this was first getting discovered and that's still debated if this was possibly a thing where it's like oh like drill a hole to like relieve some of the pressure alone instead of just anything else but we'll get back to that um but yeah so how did they get so much better at this is also part of the question so we go from like 40 percent and then we get to like almost everybody's surviving this. And I think in one case, they found like a, a group of skulls that like pretty much everybody had made it. And so um, what we're looking at here is after years of practice, this process became more refined. Um, there's smaller holes. There's more careful groove, grooving. So like you can kind of see that it's more like a crater in the moon instead of just like a knock um, versus cutting or sawing. Not to mention in Incan culture, this wasn't happening in like a hospital setting. A lot of times it happened outdoors um, using tools that they didn't just like pass around to other doctors and patients. And they had an advanced knowledge of local flora for potentially pain relieving or even antiseptic purposes. And fast forward to the 1800s, these battlefields and hospital rooms, it is not like a a good look. Uh, They were gross. They were really awful. And we didn't really understand antiseptic in the setting. So like, you know, he had a doctor and they had these fancy kits. So like they had thought about it, but they were getting passed around or just rinsed. And like, sometimes people were just like really getting in there without proper cleaning. And so a lot of the times what happened with civil war soldiers and other people during this, during that time, why they were dying is because of infection. It's not even necessarily like just the fact that they have a hole in their head. It's like they have an unclean hole in the head. That is, (laughs) I mean, there's just a lot going on here, but, um, Yeah, and so if we're going to fast forward to today, this doesn't really happen as much, but we have learned from um, this process. Now in craniotomies, which is how doctors kind of get in there into your skull, you just, they remove a piece of the skull and they put it back instead of just grinding it to dust and leaving a hole. But um, yeah, there are still some places that do this. And a lot of times it's in places that there aren't neurosurgeons like available to everybody. But there's also some people out there, um, some hippy-dippy people, who might try to drill a hole in their brain um, for the enlightenment stuff, but there's not really any science saying that if you have a hole in your brain that it's going to, um, you know, help you think better. There's, it was a big thing in the 70s, this one guy named Joe Mellon wrote a whole book about it called Borehole after he drilled into his own skull, and then there was another person who did it to herself, so would not recommend, um, don't drill into your own skulls, people at home. I, I, like, it's making me, like, flushed. Like, I'm nervous just thinking about it. Yeah, please don't. Like- <laughs> yeah, like, I just had a... Although I had an image of people doing it as, like, a decorative thing, where they were like, I'm going to put a little hole and then put, like, a shiny object in there instead of, like, that's what I'm used to play like, Yeah, no, I'm, like, really getting flushed. But, yeah, do not do that, folks. No. But, um, yeah, self-surgery aside, you know... There's a lot of reasons that we should still pay attention to this. And John Verano is like, there should be a chapter in every medical book about, you know, the Incans doing this because, you know, knowing about this today, it just shows us that like giving credit where credit's due, um, learning from each other and paying attention to cultures outside of Western medicine, like really does save lives, you know, because we weren't doing this right. And people in history doing it correctly and just learning 
from people and not saying, this is just ritual, because clearly they were onto something here. Yeah, totally. I mean, so much of that in um, in archaeology, I mean, luckily getting a bit better now, but for, you know, for a very long time, uh, it was just assumed that um, everywhere you looked in history or in uh, a place uh, outside of white Europe was backwards and anything you found there needed to be explained in, in those contexts. And yeah, no, there's been throughout history, there's been a lot going on all over the world. Yeah, People have been getting up to interesting things everywhere. I think that is, uh, it's surprising that that was such a subversive idea for so long. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad we have better options than head drilling, but um this is true. <laughs> Although when you're talking about Cusco, is it bad that one of my thoughts was I was like, why isn't this the scene in The Emperor's New Groove? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> like, they probably why is cut there it. why is there there I feel like there must be a cut scene where Yisma is like, "Crunk, let us drill the hole." <laughs> like, <laughs> wrong hole. Like oh, no. <laughs> Kronk, meanwhile, has like four little holes in his head, and that's what like his little cap is covering. So, like, we gotta work on this. <laughs> Kronk keeps getting hit, and we have to keep replacing his uh, head. <laughs> uh, another hole in the head. More broccoli. Oh my god. <laughs> so, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Um, I'm trying to think what. It was all weird. <laughs> I, yeah, it was a weird day. We had a lot of weird things. We um. I have to say that the, uh, I mean, all of the crow facts were fantastic. Yes. And I love a spooky, smart lurker, you know, a sulker. <laughs> I have to say that it, it crows have the win for me. I think crows has it. Oh. I, I think oh learning that crows God. are definitely smarter than, than me is, is a little, <laughs> that's going to be something to dwell on for a couple of hours at least. I know it's gonna haunt us. Oh my god, that, that you won! I'm so excited. <gasps> my sister is gonna be so proud of me. <laughs> I'm so proud of me. This was awesome, but I am really excited to hear why the radiators are so bright and shiny and so hot. So <laughs> thank you. I um I hope that as we get into winter, um and New Yorkers and other uh, U.S. city dwellers are shaking their fists at their radiators, that they um remember the good they once did and also know that like just you can open your window it's okay that's like that's the way it's meant to be you're not a bad person <laughs> michael thank you so much for joining us this has been great oh well thank you for having me it was a treat to say the least oh my goodness and congrats on your win and remind our listeners where they can find you yes yeah, so on um on the tiktoks and on the instagrams uh i'm m judson barry on, on the tweeters, I'm M. Judson Oneberry because I had a previous account and I'm not tech savvy enough to know how to find it and delete it. So, And then on the YouTubes as well, if you look up Michael Judson Berry or Quarantine Time, my little Moira Rose show. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear... 
please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.